Welcome to Special Relationship, a podcast from Mike and The Economist. I'm Celeste Katz from Mike. And I'm John Prado from The Economist. Well, John, it's been an incredible week in an amazing election, and we still have a few weeks to go. We're coming to you off the back of some of the strangest days in American political history. First, we had the release of an 11-year-old tape of Donald Trump caught on a hot mic talking about forcing himself on women, grabbing women by the pussy. I'm sorry to say that. My mum listens to this podcast. Then we had the second presidential debate, which contained some extraordinary moments. Uh, Donald Trump was deemed to have done quite well, at least initially, by the cable news networks. After that, there was a little more outrage at the fact that he seemed to threaten to put Hillary Clinton in prison if he won the presidential election. And then to make things a little bit more exciting, as if they weren't dramatic enough already, Donald Trump uh, has gone to war with the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Paul Ryan. To try and make sense of all of this, we have Celeste and me, as usual. We also bring in Luke Brinker, who's Mike's politics editor in New York, and David Rennie, who's The Economist's Washington bureau chief. So let's get into it, fellas. What do you think? Let's do it. Let's start by asking. We're talking between the second and the third debates. The latest polls have come in. They look very bad for Donald Trump, very good for Hillary Clinton. Is this a turning point in the presidential election? Luke. I think that clearly when you look at the dynamic heading into the debate and the dynamic that's developed since the debate, it is going to be very difficult for Donald Trump to revive himself from this point. Although it hasn't been as much of a turning point, oddly enough, as it could have been. Had Trump completely melted down in the second debate on Sunday night, I think you could potentially be seeing even worse polls coming out than we've seen so far this week. And you would have seen even more Republicans defecting from the Trump camp. He really was able to land some sharp uh, blows on Hillary Clinton in the debate. He rallied some of the Republican base. The question is whether he broadened it. And I think that that uh, lends itself to a different answer. But he may have stanched some of the bleeding. The problem for him, though, is that he's starting from a position where he really needs to be adding to his base. Elections are about addition and subtraction. Again, it's 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 clearly a situation now, less than a month to go, that Donald Trump does not want to be in. I felt like coming into the second debate, uh, Trump turned in an okay performance in the first one. He didn't fall off the stage. He didn't knock over his podium. But I think most of America is is going to really, really focus on this in the very end days. I don't mean to use the phrase end days in a in a scary fashion. You know what I mean? But I think Donald Trump didn't do himself a lot of favors as far as expanding his appeal. And maybe that's something that he can do in the third debate. What, what do you guys think over there, economists? So I think that um, Donald Trump certainly going into the second debate, and even now, uh, he has two gigantic tasks if you want to kind of really boil it down. He needs to stem his losses among queasy Republicans who voted for Mitt Romney in 2012, uh, but who just can't stomach voting for him. And obviously, the, famously, that includes people like educated uh, whites, particularly educated white women uh, living in places like the suburbs of Philadelphia or the suburbs of Denver, those small pockets, but important pockets of genuine swing voters in uh, important swing states. The other huge thing that he needed to achieve going into the second debate was, if you like, 
people who voted for Barack Obama in 2008, 2012, uh, but who are very unhappy about voting for Hillary Clinton. And he needed to keep them unhappy. He needed to stop them uh, from finally deciding they could cope with Hillary Clinton as the lesser of two evils. So he needed to build on his own base and he needed to depress Democratic turnout. And I think that he did a bit of the latter uh, in the second debate before uh, it became completely disgusting. He did actually get some standard issue political hits in against Hillary Clinton. Uh, He probably did help kind of tear her down a bit. But his big gigantic problem, which we can see, is he is absolutely not adding uh, those kind of queasy, reluctant, unhappy, better educated, more affluent Republicans. He's just stuck uh, with his core supporters who basically will forgive whatever he says and does. The polling we've seen since the second debate, I think, strongly suggests that Trump's strategy isn't additive, that his primary strategy of pleasing, in particular, white um, non-college voters gets him a certain amount of the way, but that by doing so, he puts off a lot of other people. And, you know, I, I have to say the polls look, the headline polls look bad. They look even worse when you start to dig into the demographic, um, the sort of subgroups uh, in the cross tabs in the polls. And then now, to cap it all, we have uh, Donald Trump seemingly in sort of open war with Paul Ryan and several other members of the Republican Party who he feels... Uh, are not giving him sufficient support. I mean, the the conventional wisdom says that parties that go into elections terribly divided will get kicked pretty hard by voters. Do do you guys think that's likely to to hold this time? How bad is it, you know, in purely electoral terms, that the GOP a month out from the election looks very, very split? I wanted to ask Luke about this because I think this is something that he's been observing very closely. But it's interesting to me because I think, you know, Donald Trump has always run as an outsider. He's always run as this sort of anti-Washington, pro-change. You don't want more of the same boring old stuff that isn't working for you anyway. He's also been making an interesting play, uh, effective or not, against, uh, you know, for these Bernie Sanders people who haven't been thrilled with Hillary Clinton. A lot of those people, uh, including young people, are going towards uh, Hillary Clinton. But Luke, what do you think? I mean, is this uh, is this war against Paul Ryan going to help Donald Trump in, in any way? Or is he just further digging his own political grave here? There's a scenario in which I think it could have. If he hadn't been caught on tape boasting about committing sexual assaults, perhaps the conversation would be a little bit different. But it was interesting. You know, we were talking about the conventional wisdom. And this year has really turned the conventional wisdom on its head. Trump this week has been attacking Hillary Clinton Um, based on some of these WikiLeaks transcripts that came out saying that this is somebody who in her heart of hearts wants to cut Medicare, cut Social Security, that Trump as a Republican is an unconventional conservative who won't cut those programs. Paul Ryan obviously is sort of a Republican face of the movement to reform the nation's entitlement crisis. So Trump is really sort of uh, presenting himself as somebody who is um, allied with America's seniors, with people who are on public assistance against these establishment elites like Paul Ryan and Hillary Clinton who want to cut your Medicare, cut your Social Security. And he's in step with Bernie Sanders on things like free trade. Exactly. He stands with Bernie Sanders and the populists on issues like that. The problem, though, is, again, just that he has such a toxic image with those people that arguments that might have given him a foot in the door just aren't. You know, there's a potential um, here that he turns off some 
of these Bernie Sanders supporters who were open to voting for Hillary Clinton. He reminds them of what they don't like about her. But in terms of whether he actually gets them to go to the polls and mark the ballot for Donald Trump, that's a much taller order, I think. David, what do you think? Republican Civil War possible vote winner for Donald Trump? I think that uh, it clearly reassures some in his base. I mean, it was very striking. I was in Iowa uh, over the weekend at a Republican Party fundraiser. It wasn't even particularly a Trump gathering. It was a party faithful gathering. A lot of the party faithful, uh, they think that he's the nominee and you should and you should back him. So to that extent, uh, the fact that he's kind of hanging tough and, and, and fighting back against Paul Ryan... That, that chimes with their view of the man, that he's kind of strong, that he's tough, that he knows what he's doing, that he's raising issues uh, like the need to secure the border, uh, people were saying, uh, that shows, you know, that's why he's our nominee. So there is a sort of rallying around the flag. But again, we get back to that question of, you know, the base that he has so far is not enough to get him into the White House. There aren't even enough diehard Republicans to get anyone into the White House. I mean, that's the challenge that both parties face, is to get to the White House, uh, neither party's voters are quite enough. You need some independents. You need some swing voters. There are not many of them, but you do need them. And that, I think, is, is it's hard to see swing voters like that. Uh, and the polls back this up when you look at the numbers for independents. It's hard to see them looking at kind of at a civil war in the Republican Party thinking, yeah, that's that that's a flag I want to sort of fall in behind. And Tom Cotton, senator from Arkansas, was speaking at the event you were at in Iowa. He's clearly an ambitious guy. How is somebody like that navigating um, uh, the 2016 sort of minefield at the moment? So I was in Iowa to see Tom Cotton give a speech. He's a really interesting figure. He is a uh, young, very fiscally hawkish very foreign policy hawkish uh, senator. And on paper, you would think he doesn't have much in common with Donald Trump. But he seems to be making a pitch, and clearly he's not in Iowa by accident. Uh, that's the kind of state you visit when you have ambitions to be on the presidential ballot next time around, 2020. Um, his pitch is basically, if you look at what marks out Donald Trump, the one thing that really marked him out from his competitors in the primary field uh, was immigration. And Tom Cotton's view is that uh, the public has very legitimate concerns about immigration and control of their borders, and that mainstream politicians have been ignoring them uh, because mainstream politicians are part of the cosmopolitan elite who do just fine in a world of kind of open borders and globalization. And so you can see that he thinks if he does more conventional, hardline conservative Republican points on foreign policy and maybe on budgets, but you blend that with immigration restrictionism and a very, very tough line on law and order, that that might be the secret source for next time round. That might be the lesson that the party can learn from Donald Trump. And it's interesting that you bring that up, David, because uh, you heard uh, Donald Trump a day after the debate campaigning, I think it was, Luke, am I right, in Pennsylvania. And he's talking about, you know, I'm going to build the wall and Mexico is going to pay for it. And Hillary Clinton has tremendous hate in her heart. And I think this all goes back to uh, this sort of idea of something that I was writing about after the first debate, which I think will have to uh by necessity or by nature happen in the third debate, which is let Trump be Trump. I think the guy is who he is and he is where he is as a result of that. And you can shove as many teleprompters as you want in front of the guy's face and give him talking points and make him try to look quote unquote presidential. I think we're going to run this thing out to the end with the guy that we know or the guy that we see. What do you think, Luke? I think we're absolutely going to see that. I mean, I'm sure you saw earlier Trump tweeted that the shackles have been 
removed from him. Obviously, a lot of people took issue with him using that specific metaphor, but he really feels now with Paul Ryan having all but abandoned him, with so many Republicans saying, we're done with this guy, that he is a liberated man, that he's going to run the race that he wants to run, and that you know he's in it for the long haul as Donald Trump and as nobody else. He's you know, often fond of saying, I hate to say that I'm a politician, and he's not going to act like one now. The problem, obviously, is whether that's a strategy that actually expands his base of support. And, um, you know, when you look at how Trump was able to make this a competitive race with Hillary Clinton, you know, a few weeks ago, it really looked as if, you know, this was anybody's game. It was tied in the national polls. He was moving very close to her, if not surpassing her in some of the key swing states. That was really a period where he was staying on the teleprompter, where he wasn't picking Twitter fights with former Miss Universes, where he wasn't, you know, letting Trump be Trump. He was actually acting like somebody else. Clearly, he's not able to sustain that, or he has no interest in sustaining that. And and that's so that's where we are. And I think he realizes now that he has very little to lose, and he wants to lose this race or win it on his own terms. So what do, what do you think about that, John? I mean, is he going to run this race his way, and is he going to run it right into the ground as a result? Well, all of us watched the first and the second debate, right? And the idea that that was Trump with the shackles on is a remarkable thing. Um, I don't know what debate three will be like if those shackles are off. One of the things that interests me about this cycle, if you stand back a little bit, is that on the one hand, Donald Trump's taken great advantage of a kind of anti-politics mood. A lot of his appeal is as a non-politician. He often attacks Hillary Clinton quite successfully for being having been around power for a long time and not having sort of brought about the changes that she wants to bring about. And yet, actually, in one ways, this cycle has been a kind of validation, it seems, of conventional politicians. You know, Trump has fallen prey to some kind of fairly rookie um, mistakes. And, you know, had the GOP nominated a more conventional politician, it's highly unlikely that they would have had some of the things that have you know kind of come out about Donald Trump during this campaign happen. So Yeah, but then they would have had John McCain or Mitt Romney and we all know how those things turned out. Sure. I mean if you look at the poll results, so you look at the way the polls are pointing at the moment, they suggest that McCain and Romney would have, you know, done an awful lot better, I think. And you know, those elections were a lot closer in 28 2008 and 2012 than than the polls suggest at the moment that this one will be Clearly, there's still some time before the election, um, but the gaps we're seeing are big gaps to make up in a month. So I don't know, David. What do you think? Maybe this is the the moment the Republican Party needs to uh, uh, to collapse and be reborn in some in some new way. If you believe, as the Economist does, that you need two functioning, uh, responsible parties uh, for American democracy to work well, then certainly you want the Republicans to come out of this and have a kind of soul searching moment about what went wrong. I think the dangers are already very visible. You're seeing uh, some people already saying that people like Paul Ryan are distancing themselves from Donald Trump because the elites and the establishment don't want to lose their cushy kind of access to big fat lobbying jobs on K Street. And so they're deliberately sabotaging Donald Trump, who might otherwise have won. You're seeing some people saying that. I'm sure that if We assume Donald Trump loses on November 9th. You'll see some people on the right saying he wasn't a proper Republican anyway. Uh, The liberal media tricked our primary voters into nominating a guy with New York values. Uh, We shouldn't make that mistake again. We need to find a proper conservative next time. That's the way to win the country. I think that the, 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 the dangers for the Republican Party 
of learning the wrong lessons from Donald Trump are extremely severe. And I think that they're extremely severe for one brutal reason, which is that the perhaps the single biggest reason that an outsider might uh, see in their defeat is that Donald Trump showed how in hock the Republican Party is to a chunk of voters who are stirred up by bigotry and sexism and some quite unpleasant stuff. And that's the one thing that it's not going to be polite to say in public in Republican circles. There'll be a kind of mass amnesia and an attempt to deny that this campaign ever kind of stoked those those fires. I think looking forward, I mean, I'd really like to know, is there anything he can say or do or show uh, in in the debate, in speeches, in commercials between now and the election to do anything to either win, which is a, an uphill climb, or at least not go down in completely ignominious defeat. Now, what do you think, Luke? Well, I think, honestly, at this point, there's little that he can do himself. There's a separate question of whether Hillary Clinton implodes in some way or if she does anything to damage her own campaign. Because she's not perfect, right? Not the most perfect candidate. I mean, voters, you ask them, they see these as two very flawed candidates. They see Trump as more flawed. But there have been moments where they say, well, it's essentially a wash. I don't know who I hate more. Um, It's tough to see anything on the scale of the tape that was released last week where Trump was boasting about, you know, these sort of predatory things that he's done with women. But Again, we have an intense level of scrutiny that's being devoted to, you know, these WikiLeaks document dumps of her paid speeches before Wall Street, of John Podesta's emails that sort of show the give and take that happens in Washington. Not exactly that different from business as usual, but might rub a lot of Americans the wrong way. We're in a situation now where he has so damaged himself that what might have once been pretty damaging news for Hillary Clinton may not harm her quite as much. But there's always the looming possibility that there's another shoe to drop with both of these candidates. And I think that if Trump is able to narrow the gap, and obviously winning is a much taller order, but if he's able to narrow the gap, it will not so much be because of anything that he has done to really turn the tide, but simply because there's a deep well of skepticism about Hillary Clinton and there could be some development that only reinforces that. And of course, and we can ask the fellows at The Economist this, of course, if Donald Trump loses, he can blame the media, right? It's all our fault, yeah? Most things are usually our fault. I think also there's a strange dynamic going on, which is that if the poll lead that Hillary Clinton has uh, gets wider, it makes it harder for her to make that argument that says to, you know, millennial voters, to you know, a bunch of other voters, you know, maybe to some Republicans who uh, don't like Trump, that argument that says, I'm, you may not like me, you may not love me, you may not entirely trust me, but I'm the only thing that's standing between this republic and Donald Trump and the White House. You know, as her lead increases, if it does, that argument becomes tougher. And I wonder if you might see as a result, say, Jill Stein's vote going up, Gary Johnson's vote going up, which might tend to suggest that her victory, if she does win, wouldn't be quite as big as polls currently suggest. What do you think of that, David? Clearly, turnout is one of the things, if you talk to senior people in Hillary Clinton's kind of camp, uh, the idea of a very depressed turnout uh, and that kind of enthusiasm gap was the thing that kept them up at night. That coupled with a a kind of monster turnout uh, among Trump's base. I mean, one of the things I think that is a kind of counter argument to what you say, potentially, is one of the things that hadn't happened for Hillary Clinton uh, until now was you hadn't seen 
millennial, uh, particularly young millennial women, sort of seeing the history in the idea of the first woman president, uh, seeing the history of this as a kind of vindication uh, for maybe feminist battles that were so far in the past that for some of them it didn't really kind of stir them. One of the ironic things that Donald Trump has done to himself, I think, is he's finally made it about women uh, and his kind of appalling, disgusting behavior and reaction to it, uh, to the tape being released, has finally made it all about a kind of gigantic uh, row about women. And you saw, I thought it was very striking, when Hillary Clinton, a few days uh, after the second debate, uh, did a rally at Ohio State University. Uh, it was one of the largest crowds, if not the largest crowd uh, she had had, 16-something thousand people, including a lot of kind of women students. And once you get it into kind of men being casual about sexual assault, then it becomes very real for them. And suddenly Hillary did look like a kind of plausible champion who needed defending. So that's quite an own goal by Donald Trump. Because you want to be in a position as the potential uh, first female president to uh, to need defending. But uh, here's here's an interesting question that I'd like to pose to. I'll ask Luke first, and then you guys can jump in on this. Uh, what I think about sometimes is okay. You look at what what Donald Trump has said on these tapes, and uh, you know people will look at this sort of thing and and add it to everything else that he's done during his illustrious career and say, all right, there is no way this guy can become president of the United States. Hillary Clinton has this in the bag. And you know what? I'm really busy on Tuesday. I'm not going to vote. I mean, Luke, do you think there's a possibility that, and especially if the polls show Hillary Clinton way, way up, that people don't bother? And then, you know, we all know what happens when, when, uh, when something like that develops, you get Brexit. Sure. I mean, but you do talk to people in the Clinton camp, and that is what keeps them up. They worry that they're, that people will become complacent, that they'll take this for granted, that the enthusiasm of the Trump people isn't going away. If only thing, if anything, it might only intensify uh, amid this heightened media scrutiny of him. They feel like it's Trump against the establishment, Trump against the liberal media, etc. So that base will be motivated to turn out. The problem, though, is that the Clinton campaign has a second-to-none ground game. People are already turning out in early voting. There are close to half a million votes at this point that have already been cast, including in some of the crucial swing states. The Clinton campaign actually has a vehicle to turn those people out to vote. The Trump campaign, not so much. So it's not just a question of who's going to vote on election day. It's which campaign has actually been getting people to turn out and vote. And if the Clinton folks are able to take advantage of that ground game, and it looks like at this point that they are, they could be in a position where on election day, they will have already won states like North Carolina, like Florida, simply because they will have built up such a margin that Trump would just need to blow her out on the election day balloting in order to actually overcome the lead that she has built. So if this were a conventional campaign on Trump's part where he was going toe-to-toe with her on the ground game, where he had an actual mechanism for turning out these non-traditional voters that he's relying on, maybe there'd be a little more cause for concern for the Clinton campaign. It just doesn't look like that's the situation we're dealing with, though. So I think I slightly disagree with Luke. Uh, I think political science has looked at the impact of ground games uh, at every election cycle in modern times, and they're important, but they're only, you know, at most a couple of percentage points. So they really count in very, very close elections. I think that if if the complacency point, I think, is absolutely right, John and Luke both both make that, I would predict that the next few weeks what we will hear is a lot of rhetoric from both parties saying, 
that control of the of the Senate is incredibly important in terms of who gets to be a check and a balance uh, on President Clinton, uh, who gets to be the next Supreme Court nominee, uh, even control of the House. So I think we'll see Republicans saying uh, if Hillary Clinton looks like she's going to be president, we must have a Republican Senate and a Republican House uh, to control the damage that she will do, uh, to limit the people she can put onto the Supreme Court who will change the direction of this country for decades to come. You'll see Democrats making the same arguments in mirror image, that uh, if she has a Republican Congress uh, to deal with, she'll effectively get nothing done because they will obstruct her. So I think that is going to be as important as the kind of technicalities of grand games. Luke Brinker is politics editor for Mike, and David Rennie is Washington bureau chief for The Economist. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this week. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We were produced by Alan Haberchak, which is even more of a challenge than usual, given some of the profanity that's been around in the past few days. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, Alan. And thanks to everyone who listens. If you want to help us out, you can do that by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes. I'm Celeste Katz with Mike and at Celeste Katz NYC on Twitter. And I'm John Prado at The Economist or at John Prado on Twitter. See you next week.